Hi, and welcome to the January edition of our Pensions Podcast. This podcast series sees us bring you the most recent pensions law developments in a practical way. This month's podcast we brought to you by me, Stephen Richards, a partner in the pensions team, and Julia Cooper, who is an associate in the team. Hi, Julia. Hi, Stephen. For our first topic, we are looking at the upcoming abolition of the lifetime allowance. The process started last April with the removal of the lifetime allowance charge and will culminate in the abolition of the lifetime allowance itself in April this year. Steve, um, I understand that it's not quite as simple as the lifetime allowance being removed and um, it's more more like it's being replaced. Is that correct? Yes, Julia, that's right. And key to the changes around the lifetime allowance is the introduction of two new lump sum allowances uh, known as the lump sum allowance and the lump sum death benefit allowance. These new allowances control the level of tax-free cash that an individual can receive from a registered pension scheme. So the standard lump sum allowance will be 25% of the current lifetime allowance, which is £268,275. And the standard lump sum and death benefit allowance will be the same as the current lifetime allowance, which is £1,073,100. Steve, will members with protections be entitled to a higher lump sum allowance? Yes, that's a good question. Um, Anyone with lifetime allowance protections or lump sum protection will benefit from an increased lump sum allowance. So if you want to take an example, a member with fixed protection 2014 and a personalised lifetime allowance of 1.5 million will have a higher lump sum allowance of £375,000. So the lump sum and death benefit allowance uh, will reflect personal protections. Presumably anyone who stays within these limits will benefit from the lump sums tax tax free. But what is the position if these allowances are exceeded? Any lump sum paid in excess of an individual's lump sum allowances will be subject to income tax at the marginal rate. So this is in contrast to the lifetime allowance regime previously, where lump sums paid in excess of the lifetime allowance were subject to a much higher 55% tax charge. Is this the only real difference between the old and the new regime? Uh, No, another key difference is that the new lump sum allowances are relevant only to the payment of lump sums. So a payment of pension income will not use up a member's lump sum allowance. Um, Pensions income was taken into account under the lifetime allowance regime. Um, Further tax charges by reference to the new lump sum allowances will arise only when a lump sum is paid and not on the occurrence of events which used to be called benefit crystallisation events, such as reaching age 75 and uh, death. Is there anything that trustees and employers need to be doing ahead of the change on the 6th of April 2024? Yes, there's a few steps that we would recommend trustees and employers consider taking. Um, Firstly, and probably most importantly, is checking that the scheme administrator is fully prepared for the changes, uh, in particular with regards to the requirements to report to HMRC, operating the new PAYE rules and providing statements to members. Secondly, scheme trustee and rules should be checked uh, to determine whether any changes need to be made as a result of the change in the way that the tax system works. And then lastly, some thoughts going to need to be given to how these changes are communicated to members. I suppose a further complication is Labour's previous statement that they would reintroduce the lifetime allowance if it were abolished. 
This presumably makes things more complicated for trustees and employers to know what steps to take. Yes, this makes it much, much harder. Uh, we're going to be helping our clients with communicating something in that tricky context of having a, a new allowance that may be replaced again in, in, sh in short order. Thanks, Steve. Um, our next topic considers the pensions regulators' expectations of trustees who are considering capital-backed journey plans. What's a capital-backed journey plan? So, um, Steve, a capital-backed journey plan generally involves scheme assets being invested in assets that provide a higher-than-expected return. A third-party funder then provides additional capital to support the additional risks in the scheme. Ooh, how does the pensions regulator view these? So the regulator has noted that it is supportive of the industry developing innovative ways of offering trustees choice without compromising on member benefits. The regulator has promised guidance early this year to help trustees and employers navigate alternative arrangements. However, the regulator has stressed that trustees considering entering into a capital back journey plan must take certain steps. The first is to engage early with the employer, the regulator and the PPF in distress situations. The regulator will then assess the arrangement, which is likely to take between two to six months. The second is any additional investment risk to be taken must be balanced against the additional capital put in place. Trustees should have the final say over the level of risk taken. And finally, trustee boards must have sufficient skill and understanding to appreciate the benefits and drawbacks of such arrangements for their scheme. So if the regulator wants to be notified of every decision to enter into a capital back journey plan, it's sort of a notifiable event. Yes, that's possibly one way to look at it, uh, Steve. Yes, um, although, of course, the statutory fines applicable to that regime will not apply. Uh, we expect further detail in guidance that the regulator has promised um, and trustees employers should therefore be keeping an eye out for this. I understand the regulators um, also set out some expectations on employers and trustees involved in mergers and acquisitions. That is correct, yes. Um, in a speech it gave, the regulator has reminded parties to engage early with the regulator where corporate activity is involved and there is particular interest by the regulator to ensure that defined benefit schemes are treated equitably alongside other creditors in a transaction. So the regulators had some uh, draft notifiable events about mergers and acquisitions on the stocks for some time now. It's going to be interesting to see if the regulator is going to be bringing those into force at some stage. Yes, I understand that the regulator has also set out further notification requirements in the field of cybersecurity. Yes, that's another one it's done. It's updated its guidance on cybersecurity. Um, there is a new section that requests that schemes, advisors and providers report significant cyber incidents as soon as reasonably practicable and on a voluntary basis to the regulator. Steve, does the regulator set out what would amount to a significant incident? Yep, provide a little bit of assistance here. So uh, significant cyber incidents are detailed to be those that are likely to be um, to result in a significant loss of member data, uh, a major disruption to member services, or a negative impact on other pension schemes or service providers. Uh, this is in addition to existing legal requirements on reporting cyber incidents, uh, including the requirement, requirement to report uh, cyber incidents to the Information Commissioner's Office uh, and in some cases, even the, the National Cyber Security Centre. Um, plus, as well, reporting breaches of pensions law 
uh, of material significance to the regulator is something that trustees always have to do. Um, thanks, Steve. And for our final topic, we are considering the government's response to recommendations made by the Work and Pensions Committee on the use of LDI by defined benefit schemes. So the government's response highlights a number of areas of proposed regulatory reform. Firstly, um, the government accepted the proposals of the committee that in light of concerns that they are not providing scheme-specific advice, investment consultants should be brought within the regulatory scope of the FCA subject to outcomes of ongoing DWP and HMT calls for evidence in relation to pension trustee skills, capability and culture. The government also indicates that the regulator will be taking a more active approach to monitoring adherence to their guidance on using leveraged liability driven investment. If compliance with the regulator's guidance on this issue is found to be unsatisfactory, the government has indicated its willingness to legislate to place this guidance on a statutory footing. The government is also considering reporting requirements surrounding LDI and the regulators in the process of expanding its data and digital capabilities, as well as improving its coordination with the FCA and Bank of England in order to monitor scheme controls surrounding LDI more effectively. The regulator is already introducing new questions to the annual scheme return to improve oversight of asset liquidity outside LDA mandates in order to gain confidence that scheme buffers can be replenished in the event of a market shock. The government has also further indicated that it will consider whether the implementation of further disclosure requirements are appropriate. Well, that's it for this podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. We talk about these topics in more detail in our January snapshot, um, which can be found at pensionshub.com if you'd like further information. And of course, our Stevenson Harwood pensions team is always on hand to assist you. You can listen to this podcast again and subscribe to the series on iTunes or on our Pensions Hub. Please join us again in February for the next instalment.